Hi, everybody. A quick message before we begin today's podcast. We have just released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. Stay tuned for the end of the episode for more information. Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back to our wonderful listeners. So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about estrogen dominance. My guest today is Kate Vasquez. Welcome to the show. Hi, Madeline. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm just so blessed and honored to be here. I do not know anything about this. It's probably something I should know about, considering I'm an individual who has estrogen in her body. Um, So we're going to dive in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Estrogen dominance is, is very, very common. And like you said, you should know about it. So I'm excited to, to dive in and just help women understand what it is and why is it important? Yeah. Well, let's start off first with, tell us a little bit about you, your background and like, what got you interested in this specific topic? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a physician assistant and also a certified functional medicine practitioner through the Institute of Functional Medicine. So when I first became a PA back in 2012, I was in the Western medicine model, started off in cardiology and then jumped into uh, urgent care where I did most of my, my uh, Western medicine, uh, not training, but <laughs> apprenticing or yeah, working. Yeah. Working, yeah, I was working mostly in urgent care and I dove into ER a little bit, but um, I liked urgent care because it was like a quick fix. I knew I definitely didn't want to be in primary care where it was more management of chronic diseases. But over time, I, I realized people weren't getting better. So even though I was helping them acutely, people were still coming back in and they were asking me, why am I not getting better? Why is medications not helping? And at the time I, I didn't have answers for them. I'm like, you only know what you know, you know, um, going through PA school or med school. But um, it wasn't until about six, seven years in, I came across Dr. Hyman and I was listening to a video of his that talked about functional medicine and how it helped to get to the root cause. And I was like, this is it. I wanted to know more about it. I dove in, I got my certification and uh, just really learned about how to treat the root of what was going on and looking at the body as a whole and looking at all the different systems. And uh, through that, I I started looking at, you know, the, the sex hormones and how they play a role in women. And through personal experience myself, I didn't realize it at the time, but um, I was going to end up developing estrogen dominance. So I was on birth control pills for, for many, many years, for over 15 years to treat acne. It was hormonal acne. And of course that, you know, it's like anything that's hormonal, any hormonal imbalance, they treat it with birth control, which is not the solution. And uh, it just, it just, it doesn't get to the root of what's actually going on. And uh, I finally 
learning about birth control and all the, the side effects it has on the body long-term, I made a decision like, I, I don't want to be on this anymore. I will figure out how to you know prevent pregnancy naturally. Uh, so that way I can get my body ready for pregnancy um, in a few years. But once I came off the pill, what happened was that I just developed a lot of symptoms, uh, symptoms I didn't have before being on the pill. My cycles were longer than, you know, every 28 days or like 30, 35 days, which was crazy. I had more cramping and breast tenderness. I never experienced that before either. And I was like, what is going on with my body? So I uh, did the testing and discovered there was imbalance with my estrogens, but also my progesterone was low and my testosterone had plummeted. I had like no testosterone. So it was a lot I had to, to do to help balance my hormones. And through that, I, I realized, wow, the, this is a, an issue, but not just women on birth control, but I started seeing the patterns in, in my female clients uh, when they were coming to me with PMS symptoms, with irregular periods, heavy bleeding, um, women with PCOS and endometriosis. I was just, uh, and also women too, trying to conceive. Um, I started looking at all the different patterns and saying, wow, if there's an imbalance in estrogen, it causes a lot of problems. Wow. Yeah, I um, I was on the pill for a long time too. I'm not mainly because you know you want to prevent, you know, prevent pregnancy, and I I thankfully didn't have any particular issues that I, you know, that I wasn't taking it for an issue reason. And when I came off, I don't recall there being too much of a, a kerfuffle with it, but I'm sure it's, you know, I'm sure it's had some, some impacts and maybe we'll, I'll discover some as we go along. So what the heck is estrogen <laughs> dominance? Yes. That's such a great question. Cause it, it is a big medical term. Uh, not a lot of people and women are, are aware what it is exactly, but it's just an imbalance of estrogen in ratio to progesterone. So when I think of estrogen dominance, it's really important to understand the phases of the menstrual cycle. We actually have four different phases. And the first, the first, well, it's, it's broken up in two phases, the follicular and the luteal phase. But what starts the follicular phase is the menstrual phase. And uh, most women, it lasts anywhere from three to seven days, but that's when all our hormones are at their lowest baseline level. And then once you finish the menstrual phase, you go into your late follicular phase. And that's when estrogen starts to rise. We also get a rise in another hormone called uh, follicle stimulating hormone, which helps to mature the egg, um, before it gets released from the ovary. So that's when the estrogen starts to rise a little bit. And then right before ovulation, you get a, a surge in the estrogen and a surge in another hormone called LH, which is luteinizing hormone. And that's what helps the egg to be released from the ovary. And then once ovulation occurs, then you go move into the luteal phase and then the, the hormones, all three of those hormones start declining. And then that leaves or paves the way for uh, progesterone to start increasing because progesterone is our pregnancy hormone. And it's within this phase, progesterone typically tends to peak. So for a regular 28 day cycle is around days 19 to 22. And there is a slight bump in estrogen during this time, but it shouldn't be excessive. 
So when I talk about estrogen dominance and that imbalance of estrogen to progesterone ratio, I'm talking about this, this mid luteal phase when we're supposed to have this peak in progesterone, but sometimes there's too much estrogen in the body or there's low levels of progesterone. Progesterone doesn't really reach its peak. And when there's that imbalance, that's where that estrogen dominance occurs. And that's why a lot of women experience PMS symptoms, you know, that week leading up to their period, uh, because of that imbalance. Interesting. I don't recall learning I mean, I recall learning about, you know, the different hormones, like in menstrual cycles, but I don't, I don't like, I think it was just like a really surface level, like, here's how the menstrual cycle works. And here are the hormones involved and like, not really diving any deeper than that into like, you know, what's a normal variation? How might you know that things are not in their good, like in a good proportion, right? You just kind of develop symptoms. And the first thing you do is, you know, you, you go to the doctor about it. Right. Um, so let's chat about like, are there different presentations of estrogen dominance? Like, cause you mentioned in that particular phase where you're supposed to have a jump in progesterone and a small jump in estrogen. Is that like, is that a when that occurs, or sorry, if the estrogen goes up in that particular phase, it's not, it can cause problems. Are there any other times that it can cause problems or is it predominantly in that phase? It's predominantly in that phase. Cause when I do testing, that's when I look at when, when progesterone is supposed to be reaching its peak, I look at progesterone and estrogen levels to see what's happening there. So yeah, I'm definitely talking specifically about that, that time frame. And yes, there are different presentations or patterns of estrogen dominance. Uh, most people say there's two, but I've actually noticed three different types. Um, the first one is normal progesterone levels. So when I look at progesterone through blood work, optimal range should be 15 to 25. So normal would be anywhere between 15 to 25, but the estrogen levels are really, really high compared to those estrogen ratios. So uh, there is a really a optimal range for estrogens like there is for progesterone, but typically when I look at the blood work and I see the estrogens at 150 or 200 or even 300 I've seen, uh, that's really, really high, especially if your progesterone is 15. So there is, an estrogen like estradiol to progesterone ratio that you can calculate to see. And usually that should be greater than 200. So sometimes I'll calculate that ratio based on those numbers to see where women at. And usually women are, are low. They're less than that 200 number. And from there I can determine, okay, yeah, there's a little estrogen dominance going on, especially if they're having the symptoms of estrogen dominance. And, um, with the second pattern, I typically see low progesterone levels with normal estrogen. So maybe estrogen is less than hundred, but the progesterone levels are like 10. So it's less than that optimal range, you know, which is 15 to 25. Uh, that would be a second presentation. And then the third presentation I'll see is low progesterone and high estrogen levels. And actually this last presentation is probably the most common. And that's because there's just, there's a lot going on in the body from like poor gut health and poor estrogen metabolism. And we're just stressed. So there's so many factors that are contributing, causing low progesterone and high estrogen levels. Okay. So how, 
like, what are some of the symptoms? Like what, what, what might be happening? Like, are the, so there's these different presentations. Are there going to be different symptoms associated with the different presentations? Yeah, that's a great question. Not necessarily, which is why it's important to do the testing because then the testing determining the different presentations also determines the treatment. So for right now, a lot of practitioners are treating estrogen dominance the same, but that actually is, is not the best way to go about it because, you know, if you're throwing Vitex at someone that has a uh, hot, like normal levels of progesterone, they don't really need Vitex. Vitex is an herb that can help boost progesterone levels. But also if you're not looking at their FSH and LH, if LH is higher than FSH, um, that can increase your LH even more. And that's a common pattern seen with women with PCOS. So it's really important to do the testing, but as far as symptoms, yeah, symptoms can, can be with any of those presentations. And that includes irregular periods, um, heavy bleeding and, and clotting. And that's because when estrogen is higher amounts in the body. So especially right before, you know, in that, that late follicular phase of estrogen is supposed to rise. That's actually when the endometrium, the inner lining of the uterus is thickening. And, um, if women have a lot of estrogen, even during that time, they can have an even thicker lining. So when it comes time to menstruate, uh, they have those really heavy bleeds, heavy periods. And especially when, when they have irregular periods, you know, they're not having psych or periods for or excuse me, their cycle is um, anywhere from 60, 45 to 60 days. You know, they had that extended period where that endometrium is just growing and growing and growing, becoming thicker. And so that contributes to those really heavy uh, bleeds and even with clots. Um, another symptom is, is PMS symptoms. Like I mentioned, you know, severe menstrual cramps, headaches and mood swings, um, and then another symptom too is breast tenderness. And that's because estrogen causes the breast tissue to swell. So there's too much in the body. Uh, it will cause the breast tissue to swell right before, you know, uh, in that, in that, uh, luteal phase. And then it also contributes to development of cysts. So some women that have fibrocystic breast disease, they'll tend to develop cysts in their breasts. And then when that tissue swells that those cysts fill up with fluid. So again, causing that pain, that, that swelling, uh, contributing to the breast tenderness. And then another symptom, uh, is weight gain. So, that's very, very common in estrogen dominance, but not just anywhere in the butt, hips, and thighs. That's like probably the most classic common symptom is when you see women primarily gaining weight, butt, hips, and thighs, then you know there's an imbalance in the estrogen. But there's there's also other, you know, symptoms that are common with estrogen dominance that can be seen in other disorders, such as acne, um, brain fog, bloating, um, what else? Uh, oh, low libido, fatigue, and, and even, like I've mentioned before, even infertility, you know, having trouble getting pregnant. Okay. So there's a spectrum of different ways. Um, but what you're saying is because the presentations may be different and that's where the blood work kind of confirms um, because the symptoms don't necessarily indicate which of the right. presentations um, estrogen dominance can show up in. Right. Correct. Blood work. And I also do a urine test too. So blood work is good. It's a good baseline to start with, but I also like to do urine testing, which looks at the metabolites. So as estrogen gets metabolized, um, through the body, it usually starts with, uh, the liver phase. There's two phases, phase one and phase two through the liver. And then once it goes through phase two, it can either 
estrogen gets excreted through the urine. And so we can detect those estrogen metabolites or it goes through and is eliminated through our poop. And that's usually phase three. So gut testing, urine testing are really also important tests that I use to assess the metabolism of estrogen as well. And that can also help determine where's the best support needed. Do I need to support phase one? Do I need to support phase two? Do I need to support phase three? Or do I need to support all of those phases? Wow. That's like, that's, that's a little bit more complex uh, and, but thorough. Oh, absolutely. It, yeah. it is very complex. And when I first learned about, especially estrogen metabolism, I was mind blown. I was like, this is so over my head, but I realized it is so important because estrogen, there's different, three different estrogen metabolites. One that actually protects our, our, our breast cells against breast cancer. And then there's two metabolites, which can increase, one can increase the, the growth of the, the tumor and the cancer cells. The other one actually damages DNA, which then also can promote breast cancer as well. So it's like, if we can do the testing and really see, you know, what those metabolites look like and support it, we can actually prevent a lot of breast cancer that's happening. Wow. I do believe that. Yeah. Hmm. Um, how do we get estrogen dominance? Like, is that just like a genetic thing that happens or like, is it environmental? Is it both? Absolutely. That is a great question. I, I do believe it's both. So when I discovered that I had estrogen dominance, um, I was looking at, okay, what was contributing? Cause I had really worked on my gut health and removed a lot of inflammatory foods. And it wasn't until I looked into the metabolism of estrogen, I realized I had a specific mutation of a gene called COMT gene, which affected my phase two metabolism. And in order to support that, I needed B vitamins, I needed magnesium. So yes, genetics definitely do play a role in estrogen dominance, but also lifestyle too. You know, and I mentioned gut health. So gut health, I mean, most everybody has issues with the gut. I have yet to see one person that has like a perfect gut health. Um, even if you don't have GI symptoms, there still can be issues in the gut, uh, but also, you know, poor estrogen metabolism too, you know, looking at that phase one, phase two um, and phase three. So if you have poor gut health, that's impacted phase three, but you know, are, are you, do you have the right nutrients? So like, um, uh, cruciferous vegetables are really good and fiber, uh, flax seeds are really good to help support phase one. And I already mentioned phase two, you know, supporting with B vitamins. So making sure people aren't deficient. So nutritional deficiencies is another thing that can contribute to that. Also, another big one is toxins. So we have so many toxins in our environment today, more than ever. And if you um, look at, are you familiar with uh, Environmental Working Group? Uh, are, do, they do the Dirty Dozen, Clean yes. 15, and then they have yes. the toxins list. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. They did a study um, looking at women and they discovered that women use about 12 products per day and a total of like 168 chemicals. They leave the house with 168 chemicals on their body. When I saw this, I was like, I started looking at everything I was using and counting. I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> how many chemicals am I using in my body? And I started swapping out all my shampoos and soaps and makeup, everything that I was, detergents, everything that I was using, I started swapping them out because I, I was like, 
wow, there's so many chemicals and they're disrupting our hormones. So yeah, just being mindful of the products that you're using in your home, on your skin and your environment. Um, cause that's a big one. Also plastics, plastic water bottles, plastic storage containers, um, food that comes in plastics. I mean, plastic contain BPA. And even though there are now plastics that say they're BPA free, I'm like, okay, what other chemicals are in plastics that are also being leached out that could be affecting our hormones that we haven't discovered yet. So that's another big one. Stress too. Um, I, the, I think it was the American Institute of Stress. Uh, their statistic was about 75 to 90% of primary care visits was due to stress. And I was like, when I saw that, I'm like, that makes a lot of sense because we're probably more stressed as a society more than ever as well. And, um, no one really ever taught us how to manage the stress. You know, you go to the doctor and it's like, you know, like same thing for hormonal balances, take a pill. You, if you're stressed, you take anxiety pill. And, um, that was something I really had to learn for myself as well was I had a lot of stress and anxiety growing up and, um, going in, even going through school was put on anti-anxiety medication, but I stopped it right after I finished. Cause I was like, I don't want to be on this long-term. So I looked into doing different things to help manage my stress. So stress is, is definitely another big one that negatively impacts our hormones and can contribute to the estrogen dominance. Um, also medications like the birth control pill, uh, that can contribute to that and excess body fat. So when women are gaining weight, that adipose fat tissue actually produces more estrogen. So that's definitely another cause. Um, and then something too, that's not, that's starting to create discussion is also breast implant illness. So breast implants, um, they do contain a lot of foreign chemicals that women aren't aware of. A lot of women do it for cosmetic reasons, but some women are starting to develop these crazy unexplainable symptoms, sometimes a couple years uh, after they get the implants. And that's because these, these chemicals are being released in the body and it's, it's also disrupting the hormones as well. So those are like the main common causes that contribute to estrogen dominance. Okay. <laughs> it, 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 of which a lot are, um, addressable. Absolutely. Yeah. The good news is, yeah, you can definitely, um, control a lot of these factors. I mean, genetics, we can't control because whatever you're born with, you're born with. However, we still can control the expression of our genes through epigenetics, which is the environmental and lifestyle factors. And that's the beauty of it. When people say, Oh, I, you know, my family has history of cholesterol, so high cholesterol. So that's why I have cholesterol, but they continue to eat processed foods and different things. That's going to jack their cholesterol. It's like, no, you can still do something about it, even though you have a family history of it. And, um, and that, so it's like, you know, we don't, instead of looking at it as, yeah, this is my fate. Like, Oh, I have the power now to, to control the expression of my genes and yeah, just really reflecting on the different lifestyle factors and environmental factors. And, you know, I don't expect anyone to make changes, significant changes overnight. I definitely didn't, but once I, you know, cause it can be overwhelming and it can be also really expensive to make all these changes. But once I realized like all the different factors that were playing a role, I started implementing them one at a time. I mean, lately I've always been pretty active anyway, but I just over the years just started eliminating this and, you know, like uh, processed foods. And then I started eliminating uh, meat and, and dairy 
And eventually I went full on plant-based and felt significant um, improvement in my body and how I felt and just really supporting my hormones and providing my body with the right nutrients. But, um, you know, also just removing those toxins too, it, it made such a huge difference. So what, let's talk a little bit about not treating it. Like, you know, what are there like potentially long-term consequences like not looking at it? Oh, absolutely. So if estrogen dominance is not treated, I mean, women will just continue one to continue to have those debilitating PMS symptoms. Um, but they also can develop that, that weight gain. And when women gain the weight, um, there's not any studies on this yet. And I hope that more and more people become aware, but I do believe that there is a link with estrogen dominance and insulin resistance. So, you know, when women are, are gaining the weight, um, especially seen with uh, diabetes, diabetics, when they gain weight and have insulin resistance, I do believe they also have estrogen dominance. Now it's like, kind of like becomes, does, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, you know, did the weight gain and insulin resistance cause estrogen dominance or did estrogen dominance cause weight gain and insulin resistance? I'm not sure, but I do believe there is a link there because as I mentioned before, when we gain weight, um, those fat cells do produce uh, estrogen. So I'm like, there's no way that these women that have diabetes, especially when they're younger, uh, don't have a little bit of estrogen dominance. So I, I do believe that it is linked with, with metabolic disorders, diabetes, obesity as well. Um, also a big thing too is um, the breast cancer. Breast cancer, also endometrial and uterine cancer. Um, and going back to looking at those uh, estrogen metabolites, as I mentioned before, this is why it's so, so important to do these tests, because I do believe we have the power to really reduce our risk of, of cancer, breast, endometrial, and uterine cancer, uh, if we are aware of what our estrogen metabolites look like. And knowing that we can take the steps, because usually one of those metabolites is high when there's poor gut health, when there's issues with thyroid, or if someone's overweight, and we can, you know, really address the things that are contributing to that and lower that one. And the same with uh, the other metabolite that damages DNA. If we have good B vitamin support, um, that can really help lower that level as well. Cause yeah, I mean, I, I feel like B vitamins is just like something that just, oh, you have energy, go get a B, B12 shot, but it goes far beyond that. Uh, B vitamins, I mean, most of us have, going back to the genetics, uh, mutations in specific genes that actually affect the, the conversion. Like for example, MTHFR is a gene that if it's, if there's a mutation, um, it affects the, the enzyme of the MTHFR enzyme. So there's decreased conversion of folic acid into folate. And that can be a problem because actually folate and B12, that's what helps to build and repair and protect DNA. And that's uh, what's called the methylation pathway. The B vitamins are so, so important, not just for, for an energy boost, but for that reason. And that's why, because when we don't have enough of those, you know, B vitamins and that one metabolite is on the high side, that's what's damaging the, the DNA. So we really have to protect that. But yeah, that is like probably the biggest thing is just increasing the risk, you know, of, of cancer. And I almost wonder, you know, that when you look up 
you know, how many women that develop breast cancer actually have like the BRCA1, BRCA2 gene, it's about nine to 10%. The other 90% is due to environmental lifestyle factors. But I'm like, how many of those women actually have those high estrogen metabolites that's contributing to it that could have been prevented, yes, from lifestyle environmental factors, but knowing that we now can have a better guided plan and treatment to help lower those, those metabolites. Yeah. I I think it's, you know, an important area to be looking, looking at. And, and it's interesting that like, we don't sort of standardly check our hormones, like, unless there's like an issue. Um, Well, we know that, you know, research into women's health hasn't exactly been on the top priority list for a long time. Um, But yeah, I mean, with the number of breast cancer and it happening er in earlier ages and just having such impacts on people's lives, you know, I think we just need more information. Um, even just as a woman to be able to advocate to the physician, like, Hey, can we like look at my hormones and just see, you know, what's, what's the state of my hormonal health so that like, if there's something off, you know, like it should be kind of part of your yearly checkup. I don't know. I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. It's, I'm like, now that I think about, I don't think I've ever had my hormones checked until I went into functional medicine because it's just like, Oh, it just, there was no point for them to check, you know, unless like you said, there was a serious issue, unless I had really irregular periods or I wasn't getting pregnant and, and like to, to rule out like PCOS or endometriosis. Um, so it had to be something severe in order for the hormones to get checked. But, um, the good news is that functional medicine is more about prevention. So let's actually do the testing. Um, even if you don't have severe symptoms, because maybe there's something that we can prevent like breast cancer, endometrial or uterine cancer, uh, from developing later on in life. And, um, I think that's true preventative medicine. In fact, I was telling someone the other day, I'm like, you know, in Western medicine, they do mammograms and colonoscopies as preventative, But unfortunately, it's like once they actually find the cancer, yeah, they may be checking for years and years and years. And if they do, you know, find the cancer, the tumor, even if it's stage one, yes, they can address it right away. But the problem is, is that it still could have been prevented through other different measures. So these tests aren't really true preventative tests. They're catching it right as Mm -hmm. the cancer is developed not actually looking at, okay, what can we do to prevent it from happening in the first place? Because if it was true preventative, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be there. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know that I would classify it as preventative. I would classify that as early stage detection. Yes. (laughs) Because you're not really doing anything. You're just like, is it there? Is it not there? Is it there? Is it not there? There's nothing, you're not necessarily doing anything about it. And it's not providing any information other than yes or no. Right. Um, with respect to like the processes and the things that may be contributing to the development, right? Because once the test says yes, well, it's like you already have it. Right. Right. And then it's reactive. It's not proactive, right? Um, What about birth control? Can birth control cause estrogen dominance? Is like, what's, what's the deal with the birth control? 
Yeah, absolutely. So there's not any studies on it yet, but um, I do believe there is. Not surprised. I know, right? (laughs) I know. It's like, there's a lot of studies like why women should take birth control. But but as far as like the long-term, I mean, granted, okay, I will say there are some studies like looking at long-term impacts such as it can affect gut health. It can contribute to leaky gut and actually contribute to the development of like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Um, it could also increase something called sex hormone binding globulin, which is a protein that actually binds up hormones. It can bind up a little bit of estrogen, but mostly it binds up testosterone, which is what happened with me because I was taking it for so many years. It bound up a lot of my testosterone. So when I came off, I, I barely had any testosterone left, but I do believe there is a link with uh, estrogen dominance and t- taking birth control and that it can contribute to it because, you know, estrogen, again, going back to estrogen metabolism, when it gets metabolized through the liver, it goes through phase one where it's still in its active form. But then once it goes through phase two, it turns into an inactive form and it becomes water soluble. So then it can get, you know, excreted through the kidneys, through our urine, but it also can bind to bile. And once uh, it's bound to bile and it's inactive form, then it goes to our intestines and out it goes eliminated through our poop. But um, I do believe that birth control impacts that estrogen metabolism by actually decreasing the liver's ability to produce bilirubin, which is what produces bile. So if we're not producing enough bile to help bind those estrogens, um, we're, we're, it's accumulating in our body. So there are studies that actually link that, that estrogen our birth control impacts the liver's ability to decrease that, that bilirubin production. Um, but also going back to like, it's impacting gut health. So when there is a disruption in the microbiome, uh, the microbiome is all the microorganisms that are in the gut. And if there's an overgrowth of bacteria, um, such as, uh, yeast parasites or bacteria that's growing into the small intestines called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There's an enzyme that usually is low in the gut, but when there's that dysbiosis, that um, overgrowth disruption of the, the microbiome with whatever pathogen it is, it can actually increase this enzyme and it's called beta glucuronidase. And when this enzymes increase, it actually turns the inactive form of estrogen back to its active form. And so when that happens, it's like, telling the body like, oh, you know, the estrogen, it's like, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm not ready to get excreted. So that's the body's then is like, okay, well, let's get you back in the circulation. So you're, since you're active again, you know, and, um, and there's links, like I said, birth control affects the gut health. So when that happens, and I had this too, I had elevated beta glucuronidase. So my body was just recirculating those estrogens. And that again, contributes to estrogen dominance instead of getting rid of it um, through phase three. Okay. So I guess my question is like, how do you, then how does a person decide? Do I go on birth control? Do I not go on birth control? Which birth control do I go on? Cause there's so many options now. Like how do we, this, the, uh, you may have an answer or not. This just kind of sprung in my head. Cause now I'm like, then what do I do? <laughs> right. Absolutely. I think it's, it's definitely a, a, a great question. Um, and definitely you want to have a discussion with your provider. So if you're contemplating birth control, definitely discuss with your provider, what are the long-term effects? Cause yeah, we all know, well, we should know that long-term it can increase the risk of heart attack and strokes. So knowing that, um, 
it, it, cause it contributes to clot, blood clots. So, um, and then if you're a smoker and take birth control, your risk is even higher. So definitely having that discussion with your provider about what are long-term effects, but also doing more research too, because what they're not going to tell you is that, oh yeah, it's going to increase your sex hormone binding globulin. So your testosterone is going to plummet and you're not going to have lobita and your hair is going to fall out and it's not, it's going to impact your estrogen metabolism. So you might develop estrogen dominance, you know, and they, they, they don't tell you, oh, your symptoms with PCOS and endometriosis, when you come off of it, it's going to get worse. They don't tell you these things. They just say, yeah, take the birth control. It's going to manage your symptoms. You'll feel much better. So definitely have that conversation with them. But I also recommend exploring your options. Yes, there's different types of birth control. Um, there's the pill, there's the injection, there's the patch. They all contain hormones. There's a non-hormonal form called the copper IUD, but I have um, had some clients from previous experience did react because uh, sometimes our bodies can react to heavy metals and copper is a heavy metal and it's also a foreign body, you know? So when there's something foreign in our body, our body will, will try to attack it because it shouldn't be there. So just keeping in mind, yes, there's different options. If you want to go for a non-hormonal, I would say the copper IUD would probably be the better option. However, there's still that risk that your body might reject it and you might react to it. Um, I personally recommend the natural fertility method and that's just learning about your body. So this is where you learn how it's, it's best to track your cycle. And I recommend downloading an app um, I personally use Glow, but there's Flow, Clue, uh, Daisy. There's so many different apps out there. And by tracking your cycle, you can really learn your, your body's patterns and rhythms and figure out when are you ov ovulating? Uh, because we really only have like 24 hours that we can get fertile. And if we know this, I do believe we can have the power to take control of our fertility. And so when you were tracking our cycle, you want to also check your basal body temperature, which is really, really important because um, if you just do one method, it's not as effective. Uh, two or three methods are more effective than one. So checking your basal body temperature, and that means as soon as you wake up in the morning, check your temperature and you can manually check it with a thermometer. I actually use an aura ring, O-U-R-A, and that actually checks my temperature for me as soon as I wake up in the morning. So it's really nice. I just look at the app and see, you know, what does my temperature look for that day? And it's really cool because before ovulation, my temperature is lower. And then once I hit ovulation, it spikes. So I know that I ovulated and I can correlate that to my cycle trapping, tra tra the cycle tracking app to see, did I uh, ovulate? Now, sometimes the app is off a day or two. So I tend to, to rely more on the basal body temperature because that's what's really going on in my body. Um, different things can also affect your temperature too. So if you're stressed or you're sick, your temperature will be higher than normal. So definitely keep those factors in mind. But if you do the tracking, you're uh, checking your basal body temperature. And the third method is looking at your cervical mucus. Um, I think that is going to be the most effective way. And our cervical mucus changes too. So right after we have our period, we're dry for a few days. And then as the hormones start increasing and rising, uh, our cervix is getting ready, you know, for, for conception, uh, the cervical mucus is going to be changing. So beginning it's, it starts off as like, just like a, a sticky, like a white yellow mucus. And then it, turns and that's for a few days then it turns into this like thick creamy white mucus then once you 
start to go into ovulation where you're your most fertile, it becomes like this clear egg white mucus. And that's when you know, yeah, if you are trying to get pregnant, you definitely want to conceive during this time. If you don't want to get pregnant, I recommend definitely, you know, either abstain or, or don't even have vaginal sex <laughs> because that's the only way that you're going to get pregnant. So yeah, abstain, use protection, or don't even have vaginal sex. Um, and then that way you can prevent pregnancy. And then the mucus will start to change a couple of days after that until, uh, uh, until you have your period again, but knowing that um, being really in tune with your body, the natural, you know, fluctuations of your temperature, the changes of your cervical mucus, you can really take control of your fertility that way. And I think that's probably the best way. And if you apply those three methods, I, I do believe it's like 99.9% .9 effective. I always say 99.9 .9 because there's always that 0.1%. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I, I did. Uh, I did do a podcast episode um, specifically about, well, she called it fertility awareness method. Yes. Yeah. So you'll have to go back in the podcast list because I don't remember what episode um, that is, but we have a whole episode on the Perfect. natural um, tracking. So we'll, 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 we'll guide people to go listen to that and Perfect. seek the proper advice to learn how to use that method correctly. But um, what about, so let's, let's chat a little bit about fertility in the sense of like, can estrogen, like does estrogen dominance make you more less? Does it change your fertility? Does it do like, what's, what's going on there? Yeah, I do believe it can negatively impact fertility um, because estrogen actually acts as a natural birth control. So when your body's producing more of it, um, it's, it's going to prevent pregnancy. Uh, and it makes sense because birth control, what it is, is synthetic estrogen that you're taking every single day, except for that one week. It does have a little bit of synthetic progesterone, but it's, it's more estrogen um, that's going to to basically bounce out and cancel out that progesterone. Um, and then, you know, if you take it for four weeks, that one week is no hormone. So women think, oh, I'm having my period, but it's actually withdrawal bleed because there there's no hormones. And so now your body's just shedding all, all, all of the blood that is built up in the body. But, um, but yeah, I do believe, you know, women with estrogen dominance, uh, because there's that excess of, of estrogen in the body, it's going to inhibit uh, the, and, and also too, if, if there's pr lower progesterone levels too. So not just high levels of estrogen, but lower levels of progesterone because progesterone is the pregnancy hormone. So progesterone is not increasing. It's not in the optimal range. And now your estrogens are, um, higher in ratio to that. It, it can definitely prevent pregnancy as well. So this is why it's also important. Like women will come to me having trouble getting pregnant. So I'll look at all the blood work and then the estrogen and progesterone metabolites in the urine and really help see, do I need to support progesterone? Do I need to help lower estrogen and support estrogen metabolism? Or do I need to do both? And then once we start balancing out their hormones, they've been able to conceive naturally, which is amazing. Awesome. Beautiful. Okay. Let's, uh, let's switch a couple of gears here. And I want to ask about foods. Are there any foods that are not good for estrogen dominance? Yes, that is such a great question. Uh, the common top foods is red meat and dairy. So a lot of people aren't aware, but when, when 
especially back in the day, and I was guilty of this. I used to eat a lot of red meat and dairy. I mean, I grew up in the South, <laughs> North Florida, which is like South Alabama. And of course we loved our steak back then and, and dairy, but, um, but yeah, back then meat, um, or cows, chickens, you know, they were just pumped full of hormones. And so when you're consuming the meat, consuming the dairy, you're consuming these exogenous hormones and, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's increasing. It's basically what's called a xenoestrogen. And a xenoestrogen is a, is a foreign compound that mimics estrogen in the body. Well, it is estrogen from, you know, cows and, and chickens, but it's attaching to our own receptors in the body in addition to our own receptors. And so that can definitely contribute to, to estrogen dominance. So I would recommend, um, eliminating red meat and dairy, at least for a couple months to see if that significantly improves. Yes, there are better quality sources of meat and dairy, but I still recommend avoiding it just in case. Um, and then also alcohol, alcohol impacts the liver, which impacts estrogen metabolism. Cause remember phase one and phase two go through the liver. So if you're drinking alcohol, that can definitely contribute to estrogen dominance. And then also, you know, we mentioned EWG, the dirty dozen and clean 15, when there's a lot of pesticides uh, that is contained in inorganic foods, uh, those are toxins and those are impacting the estrogen metabolism as well. Uh, so you definitely want to, if you haven't heard about it, check out the, the, the list, clean 15, dirty dozen. Uh, cause you know, ideally it'd be awesome if everybody could, you know, eat organic, but I know uh, organic can be expensive and add up. So if anything, focus on the clean 15 foods, uh, cause those are the foods that typically have the thinnest skin where those pesticides are going to be, um, the highest foods that have thicker skins, like avocados, bananas, you know, you can peel that outer layer off and you're typically fine with that, but focusing on getting those, uh, foods, especially like kale, berries, strawberries, um, peppers. I know those are like the common foods that are higher in pesticides. And at the end of the day, I know organic foods are not hundred percent free of pesticides, but I would rather consume organic foods with a lower pesticide amount than those that have a higher, because at the end of the day, we want to lower that toxic burden on our body. Uh, so our liver is not working so hard to, to get rid of all these toxins, which then negatively impacts estrogen metabolism as well. Um, uh, but yeah, those are like the, the main, foods. main ones. Yeah. Yeah. But also too, um, not just in terms of estrogen dominance, but gut health too, which indirectly impacts estrogen dominance, uh, is just like inflammatory foods such as gluten and dairy. Um, sometimes peanuts, corn contribute as well. Um, another thing is soy. A lot of people are afraid to consume soy. They think, oh, soy, soy and flax, soy and flax are phytoestrogens, which are weak estrogens, um, found in those plant foods. But if you consume non-organic or excuse me, organic and non-GMO sources of soy, I think those are fine. I think you want to avoid the processed forms of soy, like soy milk, soy cheese, um, soy protein alternatives. Those are highly, highly processed. Oh, and soybean um, oil. Those are highly, highly processed. And those are just promoting inflammation in the body. So if you're focusing on tofu, tempa, uh, edamame, those are fine as long as they're organic and non-GMO. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Um, let's talk a little bit about exercise yeah. and yeah. exercise and cycles. Does, can, does, you know, cause exercise is good, right? So 
like, is it good all the time? And like, is there anything that women should be considering as it relates to hormone health? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause one of the causes is, is actually of estrogen dominance is, is not being active, having a sedentary lifestyle. So yes, exercise is definitely beneficial. However, it is important to understand, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the, the, the menstrual cycle phases, because our energy fluctuates with our hormones. And so certain exercises during certain phases can actually either uh, positively impact or negatively impact uh, our, our health and our hormones. So uh, for example, during the menstrual phase, you're probably going to feel your energy at its lowest. And so this is not the time to do a HIIT workout or go to CrossFit and uh, Orange Theory, you know, going to those like high intensity. You don't want to do that during this phase because your energy is not even that high. So you want to focus on exercises that are low impact, such as yoga, Pilates, going for a walk, going for a hike. Um, those are going to be better for, for this time of the cycle. Now, uh, and actually say show too, a little bit of exercise, especially when you start your period and you have cramping is actually beneficial. And I found this, um, myself, you know, when I start my period and if I experience a little bit of cramping, I'll, I'll go for a light jog and actually feel better afterwards. So lower impact uh, activities, um, not going for a marathon, not doing a hit workout. And then during the follicular or late follicular phase, as you transition out of your menstrual cycle, your energy starts to increase. So then you can start incorporating a little bit more moderate impact activities, such as uh, running, uh, running, jogging, running, um, cycling, swimming, also lifting light weights, light, uh, lightweight strength training and body calisthenics. Then as you approach ovulation, your energy will peak and be at its highest. So if you love doing HIIT workouts and CrossFit, this will be the best time. You'll probably hit your personal record, you know, during this time. If you run marathons, you want to schedule your marathons during this time um, because your energy is going to be at its highest. Now, I also want to make note, um, some women are burnt out, um, can have issues with their adrenals, something called adrenal fatigue. So if you're constantly low energy, I wouldn't consider doing any of these high intensity exercises until you get the adrenals addressed. But if otherwise you feel good, you don't have that, um, your adrenals aren't impacted and your energy, you can be in tune with the ebbs and flow of the energy throughout your cycle. You know, listen to that when your energy peaks, definitely, um, go for those, those more higher intensity exercises. And then lastly, the luteal phase, your energy starts to decline as it goes back, you know, getting ready for that menstrual phase again. So you want to go back to those, uh, moderate to light impact activities. So go, again, going, uh, back to swimming, walking, jogging, uh, that lightweight strength training, body calisthenics, even incorporating, starting to incorporate a little bit of yoga, Pilates, especially towards the end of that luteal phase. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, again, continue on continuing yoga Pilates, uh, once you go into your menstrual phase. Okay. Good things to keep, you know, keep in mind, um, you know, based on where things are in your cycle. Yeah. Uh, so that's great. Tell us about your estrogen reset course. Yes. So I created an online course called the estrogen reset course, because I really wanted to empower and educate women to learn more about their hormones. I realized 
as I was doing my consultations, I'm more focused on explaining what's happening in the body and why. And I didn't really have the time to dive into how to track the cycle, you know, all the different aspects of estrogen dominance, the patterns, um, also the different lifestyle factors that they can uh, do and incorporate into their daily life at such a deeper level. I would dress, you know, just kind of touch upon them, but I wasn't able to address each um, in greater depth. So I created the online course. So women also have access, not only through me, but uh, more women have access to this information to really learn more. And, um, and then as part of the, the course, it's, it's really simple to follow. It's about eight modules long and each module is about seven to 15 minutes. And that's because I realized we are so busy, constantly on the go that if I recorded long videos, no one's really going to pay attention. You know, we need short little snippets here and there. And so I made sure that the videos were seven to 15 minutes long to give you enough information. And uh, at the end of each module, you also have an actionable step to take so that we can start incorporating uh, what you learned into your daily routine. So it's really stuff, simple steps to follow. I've gotten amazing feedback from a lot of the women that have taken it so far, um, such as like, why didn't we learn this in school? <laughs> I mean, these things are so important. And they really loved uh, to be able to, to use the, the guidebook that I created. And in the guidebook, I have an area where you can create a self-care routine. So do think, you know, what can you do uh, every day to help manage the stress and also wind down routine because I really think it's important to help uh, your body to wind down before bedtime to really help improve the quality and quantity of your sleep and then also an area to create your exercise routine so now that you've learned about the different uh, exercises to do during different phases of the cycle you can create your own exercise routine and also I created a 14 day meal plan. So with different meals and it, with nutrients to help support your hormones, as well as uh, something called seed cycling and seed cycling, it can really help your, you to sink your body, especially with the moon. So it helps sink your body to get back on a natural uh, hormonal rhythm. And I include different recipes for that as well. Oh, that's so helpful to have like, because that's definitely like one of the things like I'm a busy person and I'm, you know, I'm working on a gut issue and it's like, great, I'm going to eat X, Y, or Z diet for four weeks. Well, I don't know how to cook for that. And what should I eat? You know, you kind of get a list of foods and you're like, great. Now I don't like, what do I do with this? Like, am I going to go out and buy like 15 cookbooks now for, to figure out kind of like, what I should be eating throughout the day. And so it becomes overwhelming. And I think for me, that's a major barrier. Yeah. It's like, yeah. great, tell me to eat broccoli, but then I don't know what to do with it. Okay, I know what to do with broccoli, but I'm just, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's why I created the meal plans. And you can either follow the meal plan or just take the recipes from that and, and create your own meal plan. And I even have it where you eat that specific, it's like the meal plan is, has a, has that recipe every two days, but how I cook is I um, will cook a meal for four days. So even though it's 14 days, you can actually turn it into a 28 day meal plan because of that. If you're cooking that one recipe for, to have for four days and that way you're only cooking twice. Cause I'm like, I can't cook every day. It's just too much, too much work. So I wanted to make sure it's really easy and, and give you those recipes. Um, so that way it takes the thinking out of it. Like, like you said, like, okay, what, what do I cook? What do I make to help support my body and the issues that I'm having? 
Yes. Thank you for helping us to to get that stuff sorted out. Uh, you know, that's what I'll certainly pay money for is like, just just tell me what to do. Tell yeah. me what to do, how to do it. You know, if there's something in the recipe that I don't like, then it's easy to like at that point, personal preference to modify is easy. But just like, can you can you tell me the thing? Just tell yeah. me what to do. Absolutely. And then I'll go do it. But if you make, if you like, just tell me, don't eat this and eat this, like, that's too hard for me. Too much work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I just, I just really want women to have, have more energy, feel confident in their bodies, have happy periods again. Um, so that way they can show up fully for themselves, their family and their loved ones and even their businesses. So there's a lot of women entrepreneurs out there. I know they definitely need a lot of help. Um, and that's my goal is to provide them, you know, with this information and easy steps. Yes. As a female entrepreneur, I thank you very kindly for making my life easier. Um, so where can people find out more about your course, um, or, you know, find you, follow you, work with you, you know, that whole spiel. Yeah, absolutely. So they can find me on my website at yourradianthealth.com. That's where the estrogen reset course is located as well. So once you go to the website, you can pull down the drop down menu. You'll see that. Also, for all those that are listening, I created a code, uh, Better Life, and then that way you can get $50 off the course as well. So use that course, Better Life, and um, you know, definitely take advantage of that. And uh, also you can find me on Instagram at Kate Vasquez underscore PA, PA for physician assistant. Um, and then Facebook as well. I have uh, Kate Vasquez, M-M-S-P-A-C. Um, you can find me there as well. I'm, I'm more than happy to, you know, if anybody has questions, you know, I, I, I respond. Uh, also, if you're interested in working alongside me, uh, I also have the option for a discovery call. So you can definitely schedule a complimentary 15 minute discovery call just to see, uh, is this the right fit for you? Awesome. And to all of those that were like, what did she say her handle was? Uh, M blah. Don't worry. We're going to put everything in the show notes. It will all be there. Facebook, Instagram website, it'll all be there. So you can just go to the show notes, um, or the description of the podcast. If you're listening, you know, on a podcasting, platform or um, our website will have the show notes there ecophysio.com under e you can find it under the blog and or podcast tab everything is there just go there copy paste click and you'll get connected and we'll put the coupon code for the $50 off her estrogen reset course in there as well so you can copy and paste it I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, wait, wait, there's one more thing. There's one more thing. You're writing a book. Yes. I'm glad you reminded me. <laughs> See, I almost forgot about it because I didn't put it in my notes. But then I was like, there's one more thing before everybody runs off. Tell us. Yes, absolutely. I am writing, currently writing a book on estrogen dominance. It's called Estrogen's a Bitch. And uh, I don't use this term lightly. In fact, I don't really like to use this term. But when I was thinking of uh, the imbalance of estrogen in the body. And okay.
Okay, so apparently Zoom and the power and the internet, the power of the internet is causing me some grief here today. I caught, the last thing that I caught that I remember is you're writing a book, it's called Estrogen's a Bitch, and go. Yes, (laughs) when I thought of the title, I was thinking about how women are suffering every month and just with debilitating PMS symptoms, you know, the weight gain, not feeling confident, not having energy. And I was just like, wow, estrogen is such a bitch when it's out of balance. And I was like, wow, that actually would make for a great title. And I normally don't use this term and I don't use it lightly, but I felt that it was an appropriate term to describe what's happening in our bodies, especially when it's out of balance. And so another thing that I discovered or not discovered, but I realized was that there's not a lot of information about it. And so it's now my mission to write everything in this book that women can, can go to, they have a source that they can go to, to learn more about it and what they can do, because we do have the power to take back control of our health if we have the right information. And so that is my goal to outline everything. And there's so many other conditions that um, estrogen dominance can contribute to. And I'm going to outline everything in the book. So I'm so excited. I'm currently writing it now. And my goal is to have it launched in the fall of this year. So soon on the website, I'll have a link uh, for the wait list to sign up. Uh, Once it's released, you guys will be notified so you can get your hands on that book as well. There you go. So all the more reasons to find her on socials, visit her website uh, so that you'll be informed of such things. So, okay, glad we stuck that in before forgetting. And so thank you again. And thank you for your patience with whatever's happening here in Ontario, weather-wise. And of course, I will take this time to thank our listeners for, you know, tuning in and uh, subscribing. If you're not subscribed, do so. And, you know, share out this podcast so that more women can learn a little bit more about their hormones because you never know. It's not like people are going to, you know, advertise that they're having a hormone problem, right? So by you sharing it out and getting this information out, you may be helping somebody who may be suffering silently and doesn't know what to do. So please share it out and we'll connect with everybody on the next podcast. Bye for now. Hey guys, thanks for hanging out. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we have recently released a free mini training called How to Work with Labor Pain to Have a Positive Birth Experience. And in this mini training, I take you through what pain is, how labor pain is different than like an acute ankle sprain type of pain. I talk about the three different ways that you can work with pain. And then at the end, I actually teach three different ways that you can work with labor pain to have a more positive birth experience. If you would like to access this free mini training, you can go to courses.ecophysio.com forward slash mini training, or you can look in the description of today's podcast episode At the end of the description, a link will be there for you to get the free mini training. Hope to connect with you there. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.